All right. Good morning, friends. We're going to keep on track here, going through the book of Romans. If you wouldn't mind turning over to uh, Romans chapter 5. And uh, the plan is to finish chapter 5 today. We have some communion set out, so we'll get an opportunity to remember the Lord uh, in that way. If you recall, if you've been tracking with us or you have not, uh, by brief review, if you remember, essentially, in Romans 1, 2, and the first half of 3, Paul is laying out the both depressing and yet incredibly encouraging fact that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We don't rejoice in that fact by any means, but the, the, the fact that all people end up being condemned due to their own sin is what allows all people to be saved, anybody who would like to, who would like to receive the free gift of Jesus Christ. If you recall there in 1 and 2, he's talking about, he talks about moral Gentiles. So remember, you have a Jew and you have a Gentile. A Jew is someone who grew up with the law, who's familiar with the Levitical law, all 613 or 19 tenets it has, and then the, the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments. And as a Jew, uh, you would have grown up with that. You would have uh, many, uh, it was not uncommon to memorize the law, uh, depending on what area you were from and whether you were kind of a conservative or uh, liberal scholarship type person. In, even in Jesus' day, many kids memorized the law. Uh, and, and so if you were a Jew that had that law and knew the law but broke the law, there's condemnation. If you are a Gentile who did not know the law, there's condemnation based on the light that you did have. Remember, he makes a very key point in chapter 2. It's the fact that even creation declares there's, that God has glory. Remember what glory is? That glory is a, uh, the idea of good opinion uh, or weightiness. And so there is an um, uh, event that occurs that when you... Sorry, that threw me off. <laughs> Normally it doesn't, but that was exciting. The... Uh, but ultimately, if you grew up without the law, that God's glory is declared through creation. It says two things about it. One, it shows that his eternal power and that his eternal character, that he's divine. And so there will be no people that stand before the Lord and say, I never knew anything about you. The Lord, it's great that we have missionaries and missionaries are very important. But at the same time, whether it's by divine revelation or revelation from, the, from creation itself, each individual uh, is, is alerted to, is drawn by the Holy Spirit that there is a God. And he's, been, he's given some very specific promises that he says, if anyone seeks me, if any person ever seeks God, seeks God he says, I'll reveal myself to that person. So Paul's laying out this idea that it's not that people are ignorant of God, it's they suppress, we suppress the truth we know about God. And that's what happens, and that's what brings condemnation upon every human being. Now, he makes that huge declaration, and it would be very difficult, and, and not just for the Gentile, but for the Jew, because if you remember, the Jews looked very much at the law and at their Judaism, and they said, this is what makes us right with God. And so part of that, those first few chapters is God saying, no, the law never made you right with me. And then in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 21, we're told that there's now a righteousness or a rightness with God, to be right with God, that was manifested or we might say revealed to us, and it's apart from the law. In other words, God makes people right with himself, and it has nothing to do with Levitical law as a way, as a means to be right with him. And so for the Jew, that would have been revolutionary. That would have been very difficult to understand. And really, the end game, the point is this, that righteousness, being right with God, has always come by faith. It doesn't matter if it was Adam. It doesn't matter if it was Abraham. It doesn't matter if it was Sarah. It doesn't matter anybody down the line, Moses, on up, into the law, us. It's always been a person is right with God through faith, trusting that what he said is true. Now, what they believed and what they trusted in might be a bit different, right? In the law, God said, here's the sacrifices, and they were, it was a very brutal, brutal uh, picture, and really more than a picture, because you would experience it. So the, the Old Testament saint by faith there, you know, you take your family, and you have a sin offering, and you bring that little goat or that little lamb in front of the priest, and you stand there with your family, and you put your hand on that, uh, on that offering in the symbolic transfer of sin, 
That priest slits that animal's throat right in front of you and your family, bleeds it out into a basin. Your kids are watching this. And then he takes that blood and throws it against a hot altar. I don't know if you ever smelt burnt blood. It's really gross. And that would sizzle up, and then you, you, as a dad, you begin to carve it out, and you take the certain parts, and they go to the priest, is essentially their, how they ate, and that's how they ate. And then you would take certain parts and give it to the priest, and they would put them on the altar. And you would all stand there and watch this very brutal depiction of what sin costs. So it wasn't, it wasn't that you obeyed the law that justified you. It wasn't even the blood of bulls and goats, because we know from the New Testament, it's very clear the blood of bulls and goats never forgave sin. It says that it covered it, it smeared, it atoned for sin. And then it would be Christ that comes. So you as, as your family, you, your wife, your kids, you observe this radical picture, knowing that someday Messiah would come and take, away the, and take away sin and not just atone for it. So it doesn't matter if you're Abraham and you just believe a promise and Sarah and you believe a promise and God says, you're right with me because you trusted me. It doesn't matter if you're uh, you know, in the Old Testament and you're bringing a sacrifice and, and going through that. Is you're saying, I'm doing this because God's called me to, but I look forward to when Messiah comes and has the perfect sacrifice for sin. And it doesn't matter if you're here today and if you're looking back to the cross and saying, I trust Jesus for what he did and for my sin at Calvary. It's always been by faith and it's always been apart from the law. Then in, the, in the, uh, 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 chapter 4, the, Abraham, uh, the example of Abraham, which is the perfect example, right? Because Abraham had no law, but yet he was given circumcision. So Abraham trusts God in Genesis chapter 15. God says, you're right with me. It's 13 years later after that point where God says, you're right with me because you trusted me to Abraham, that he gives them circumcision. And that's supposed to be an outward uh, example that they're of an inward righteousness, a private thing between you and God. So he does that. So then we get into chapter 5, and in chapter 5 last week, what do we do with this amazing information that a person is justified by grace through faith and not of works? What if we do, and if you look at these last couple verses here in, in chapter 4, where he says, um, but in verse 23, verse 20, uh, chapter 4, verse 23, he's talking about Abraham, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. And it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And then in verse 25, or excuse me, then in verse 5, he introduces and begins a practical side of things. If I'm then right with God by faith, immediately this question of suffering comes in. And if, if, if I'm right with God, what do I do with suffering? And, be, and he talks about how suffering works out in our life and how ultimately when we walk through suffering, because we have a choice at the end of the day when we walk through suffering, what, what we're going to have, what, what, what it's going to do to us, right? If, if suffering comes our way, whether it be health or relational or monetary or whatever it might be, um, that when suffering comes our way, do we... Allow God to work it out in us, as James, the, the epistle from James says, to let patience have it per, its perfect work in you. Do we allow the patience in suffering to, to, to work in us, or do we immediately go to blame and guilt? God, you let this happen. This is your fault, or somebody else's fault. But God, you let somebody else do this to me, and now I'm angry with you, and now I've judged you wanting, and now I'm going to reject the comfort you have for me. And then we grow bitter and bitter and bitter, worse and worse as it goes. Or are we going to allow and say, I don't know why this is happening. I don't know why this happened. I, I can't work out all the details behind it. But at the end of the day, Lord, I know that you've allowed this and you can get something good from this. That you can work this out in my heart. That you can work this out in my life and something good can, can come from this. One attitude will lead to destruction. And I don't mean like God crushing you. I just mean anxiety, depression, rage, all the emotions that we deal with. And one will lead to peace and tranquility and growth and fruit in the Holy Spirit. So then as he works through chapter 5, where we start off today in verse 12, now he's going to actually talk about the nuts and bolts of being a saved individual. How it happened and now what we do with it. And this is, I think, uh, it was Martin Luther who said that any Christian that drops their Bible should fall open to Romans 6, 7, and 8. And it's the idea just behind that Romans 6, 7, and 8, when you... And I don't mean this in a condemning way, but if you're interested in following Jesus, if that's something that you're interested in, 
Romans 6, 7, and 8, are the, it's, it's how it works. It's how you do it. It's how you, anybody here ever here have feelings or sensations, whatever you'd like to call it, of just, you feel like you have to sin? Temptation that seems like unovercomable? Almost like an addiction? Ever had that experience? Ever had an experience where, and, and I'm not talking about just like, you know, drugs or partying or, you know, sexing it up or whatever. I mean, just rage, unforgiveness, bitterness. And you feel so justified. Doesn't it, it feels really good, doesn't it, to be bitter for a while? I mean, doesn't it? Somebody cuts you off in traffic and you're driving around like, yeah, that guy is a guy. Right? And you feel justified. And you can kind of like stoke it like, that's right. That's right, heart. Get enraged. I deserve this. And so the cool thing about Romans 6, 7, 8, it doesn't deny that that happens. See, the Bible doesn't deny that we're broken. It doesn't try to pretend we're not. It shows us how we can, through the power of the Spirit of God, deal with those things in our lives. You know, one of the things that my wife did with our kids that the first time I ever witnessed it, I was like, wow, that's really smart. I wish I had thought of that. Is uh, uh, one of the kids, it must have been Chloe because she's the oldest. She was really chapped about something. I don't remember what it was. I probably didn't care, to be honest. No, I'm just kidding. But you know, <laughs> yeah, I'm just kidding. She was super chapped about something. And I remember Tam just looking at her and he goes, she goes, how does your heart feel right now? And, and how, does that, how does that make your life feel? You're so angry and you won't let go. And I was like, whoa. Because we don't think about that, do we? We just think like, oh, I'm mad. And it, I just remember it really helping Chloe from a young child. It's being like, oh, it feels pretty poopy to be like this and to you know, be experiencing this. And so Romans, as we get into it in 6 and, and really 5, is this is how it comes about. This is what God did to bring it about. And 6, 7, and 8 is how, how we implement it in our lives with spiritual truths. So if we jump in there in chapter 5 and verse 12, he says, therefore, and again, what's the therefore, therefore? It's based on everything we've been talking about here. So because of this, everything we know, just as, in, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now this can get a tad academic. I'm, just, I'm not trying to go there with it because this is important so we can understand how events occurred to get us to where we are and how the same and other events occurred to bring us out from where we are. So you're going to hear a lot of the, the same word over and over again, gift, transgression, Adam, Jesus, all these things. And what's happening in the next, whatever it is, from, chapter, from verse 12 to 21, what's happening in these verses is Paul is describing how we became sinners and how Christ overcame it. Okay? So what happened to us, in essence, by just being human beings, and now what Jesus did to end that cycle of destruction and sin in our lives as human beings. So he makes this point, and he's going to make it over and over again, about four or five times from different angles. And the first thing he says, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, man and men are two different words. Man literally means man, and men means all, every human being on the planet. But he makes a point here, and he says this, Sin came, and with it death, and it came through one man. It came through Adam. So it's an interesting idea, and, and, and food for thought, and, and you can come to your own conclusions. So if you reflect back to Genesis chapter 3, at the fall of, of humanity, it's interesting because they're in the garden, and Satan is there, and you have the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you have the tree of life, and all the other trees that they're welcome to eat from. And Satan comes along and, and begins to lie to Eve. So sin is actually already in the world, right? Because Satan is there lying and deceiving. So Satan evidently is already cast down to earth and is able to roam earth and is now tempting Eve with his lies. After he tempts and deceives Eve, Eve partakes of the, the fruit of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which would be another teaching another time. She partakes of it and then hands it to Adam and he partakes of it. 
But we know from the scripture that when Eve partook of it, she was deceived in some way about it. But when Adam partook of it, he was not deceived. He just flat out rebelled. So it's noteworthy that death didn't come through Satan. Death didn't come through Eve. It came through Adam. It came through rebellion, not deception. So he makes this point first and foremost that sin and death entered the world and it came through one man. But yet every single person says, so death spread in all men, in all humans, because all sinned. Now it entered through Adam, but yet all of us sinned, so it has permeated. Literally means like a mist. The word spread, it means it misted. It misted through all humanity. It's, it's kind of a word picture for us in Greek. So, so death spread to every single person because every single person sins. Now, your Bible might have a little dash right there at the end of chapter, or excuse me, the end of uh, verse twelve, because Paul is actually going to now insert a parenthetical thought, which just means parentheses. Paul, I don't know if you notice this. Paul's like the king of commas; like he always starts an idea and then he's like, "Oh yeah, by the way," and then, oh, and this. So that's what he's doing here. So he starts with this idea of origin, sin origin and death origin. But then in verse 13, he's going to talk about what was going on in the world before the law. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who is to come. Now, this is an interesting thought that he inserts here because he makes the point that sin was definitely in the world. So we have no record of any kind of written law from God, from Adam to Moses. We don't have it. We know that there was some sort of communique, right? Because uh, Cain and Abel bring sacrifices. Cain purposely brings an illegitimate sacrifice. And uh, yeah, Cain does that. And Abel purposely brings a legitimate uh, blood sacrifice, meat. So obviously there had been some sort of communique between God and humans. Remember, this is pre-flood, so Eden is still there. There's still cherubim around Eden, guarding it from humans from coming in, you know, all these different things. So that era of time is really, there's not a lot written for us in the scripture. We know there are a lot of people that were living a really long time, and if you start lining up like the ages of people, it's pretty incredible who would have known who and, uh, and so forth. But all that to say is he makes the point that there wasn't a law, but there was still sin. Now remember, we covered this in chapter 3 also. Because he makes this point, which was also in chapter 3. But sin is not counted, verse 13, where there is no law. So there's still sin in the world. But there was no written law about sin in the world. So God was not accounting sins to humans for those things. They still died because of sin. But there was an accounting of that. He says it twice over. Think of it this way. If we have a law that says you can't assault someone, and we do, thankfully, it seems like a good law, you can't assault someone. But if you stand on the street and just scream at someone, right, you haven't broken that law. So it's still wrong and immoral. Most likely, nobody's going to walk by and say, this is a good thing that is happening right now, right? But you cannot be held accountable to it by the government because there's no law against it, Right? So therefore, if you assault that person, now it's imputed to you, and now there will be, be punishment for that. So I'm not claiming to know all that that means, but he says it twice, and it means what it says. Where there's no law, God is not imputing their sins to people. But, he says, they still died. Verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. So the people who were sinning, Without law, they still died because even though there's no law, it's still morally wrong and corrupt. See, sin in its very nature is, is rot, it's rottenness. It's darkness. It's badness. Now, we may not think of that. We may, it's, it's sometimes it's difficult for us to think of it that way. What's the big deal about getting liquor at a party? I mean, honestly, what does it matter? You're at a party. You're hanging out. You have a bunch of beers. Now you're even having more of a party. Why does that matter? Because ultimately, at the end of the day, what drunkenness does, I mean, just, just forget about like sclerosis of the liver or whatever, but, but what drunkenness does, right, is it causes you to deal with things by obscuring your thinking, by altering your mental status. 
It's a really interesting thing because in our culture today, like using weed is like heralded as this big heroic thing to do. It's freedom. And I'm not against medical marijuana. I'm not making any statements about that. I'm just talking about how we, how we say in our society, like, why are we criminalizing drugs? Why are we doing this? Why is it a big deal to be altered? I mean, not like altered to the point you assault someone. I think we can all understand why that's a big deal. But why does it matter if I'm just smoking weed to relax? Why does it matter if I'm getting drunk to relax? Why is that a big deal? But really the question is, what are you doing that you have to smoke weed to relax? What are you doing that you have to drink away? What is it that's happening where you're unable to deal with that thing between you and the Lord? Why is that? So when God comes along and says, look, don't be a drunkard. It's not like he's like, ha, 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 I just want everybody to be sober and have no fun. No, the idea is, why are you self-medicating? When you self-medicate like that, you destroy those around you. You do. Because if you're a dad and you're drunk all the time at home, guess what? Your kids have no fellowship with you. They probably can't be around you. They have to be hidden from you. You might get violent in that place. You might say things that you regret. Right? So all of a sudden, this idea of not being drunk, it's not that God, God is some sort of killjoy and just, just doesn't want fun. He's saying, look, there is a much better life. And drinking and smoking away your problems is something, he says, you don't have to do that. If you don't do the things that cause that, that, that cause that kind of regret and shame and guilt to try to get rid of it chemically, well, now there's, that's something. Just even if you said we, you were an atheist and there's no God, wouldn't we conclude that the person that can have fun at a party sober is probably better off than the person that, can have fun, that can't have fun at a party sober? Wouldn't we say that there's something dysfunctional about someone who needs a substance to enjoy themselves? That's not a condemnation. I'm not saying, oh, I'm not condemning anyone. If I didn't have Christ, you know I'd be smoking weed, right? <laughs> because there'd be nothing else to deal with it. Because this planet's going to hell in a handbasket, and we all know it, and we pretend like it's not. So I have no condemnation for people that, that try to deal with those things. But God comes along and says, you don't have to do that. And if you are doing it, something's going on in your life to cause it. That's the point. So we have to understand that sin, and it doesn't matter, we can talk about any sin, and it's, it's destructive. Fornication, right? It's not a big deal. Some casual sex. We're going to hook up. We're going to go out tonight, have a little sex. We'll both relax after it. Why does it matter? I don't know, why is there like a billion dollar industry to enhance body parts, right? Because people feel inadequate. And so we have a whole industry designed to make people not feel inadequate. So if you have partner after partner, I'm not asking anybody to raise hands, but let's be honest, how many people, how many of us, if we've had multiple partners came to a place where we felt fearful when we finally got married because we said, I hope I'm their best lover they've ever had. I hope I satisfy them. I hope they're not thinking of someone else. I hope they're not, you see where I'm going with this? We don't have to go back, HIV. No, just mental stuff. The radical anxiety and fear that can come across from a promiscuous life. And God just said, hey, I got this thing for you guys, sex, it's really great. I made erogenous zones. I created you for this. I want you to enjoy it. Just pick one person to enjoy it with. Explore it, check it out, have a good time. You do you. Then you don't have to worry about anything. Can you imagine if every single person on the planet had only been with one other person on the planet? Like, nobody would be the wiser. Everybody would just be like, this must be the best sex there ever was. Because it's with you. It's amazing, but we complicate it. And we think to ourselves, no, this person won't satisfy me anymore, or this person, this. Isn't that crazy? I mean, I'm not trying to get crass here, but to think like some other person's body parts will satisfy me than some other person's body parts? That I'm going to step out on my spouse or this or that or the other thing because, because of that? And I know adultery has much farther reaching reasons, but we make some crazy stuff up in our minds. So God just comes along and he's like, hey, Here's an idea for you guys. Just be with the one that you're married to. Enjoy it. Love it. Skip all the other shenanigans that happen. And we're like, no, you're stupid. That'll never work. That could not work. Or we're like, what? Don't get drunk? No. Come on. You just don't like fun. That's ridiculous. He's really smart. 
And so when he comes along, he says, hey, this is a bad plan for you. As an individual, as a race of people, it's bad for you. Don't let us be the ones that go, ah, no, it's all right. It's pretty good. I'll be all right. Don't we always say that? I'll be all right. I'll be fine this time. Anyway, we'll move on. So he says, even those that were sinning not after the transgression of Adam. Adam transgressed against a direct order, right? That's the transgression of Adam. God said, do not eat from this tree, and Adam rebelliously ate from that tree. So he said, even though everybody else's transgression that they were dying, that caused them to die, was not like Adam's. Remember back to the idea, there's no written law until Moses. So even though that they didn't sin like Adam sinned, or we don't sin like Adam sinned per se, they all died and we die. And he says, but then he says, Adam, who is the type of the one who is to come. Now, this is an introductory statement to what he's going to say next. Adam is a type. He's more of a contrast, but he's a type of Christ. In that sin and death came by Adam through one human being, and life and grace come through one human being, through Jesus Christ. And so he says, but the free gift, so what is the free gift? Before we go farther, let's define this. Over and over again in, in Romans, he has talked about the gift of grace, right? That God has given the gift of salvation. That salvation is not earned. Remember, that's been our whole thing up to this point. A person cannot earn their salvation. A person is saved by grace through faith. It is a gift of God over and over and over again. So that gift was purchased by Christ at Calvary. That's what the cross is. It's not just a moment in history that we can point to or some sort of defining moment for Jesus or some reason for jewelry for Christianity. The cross literally is where Christ is crucified and he sheds his blood as a type, really the fulfillment, not the type, but the fulfillment of all the types and shadows of all the animal sacrifices before. So as we said before, as all the animal sacrifices, they all pointed to the Messiah. That's why every Old Testament saint or holy one is all it means. Every Old Testament person who trusted God, they looked forward to Messiah from the Old Covenant. And every New Testament person, us, we look back to the cross. Because that is where everything God had always planned was fulfilled in time. We know that he always planned on going to the cross. Before he had even made the world, Ephesians 1 tells us, he had already planned that it was known in heaven that Christ would come and pay for sin before the foundation of the world, the Bible says. So it was always that plan. So this free gift is Christ coming and paying for sin and then rising from the dead because death couldn't hold him. He had lived a righteous life. There was nothing that could stop him. Yet it says that he waited for the Father to raise him from the dead. So that's the gift that we're talking about, this free gift of salvation, the free gift of forgiveness and peace with God. That's what it is. He says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. So here's the contrast. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Excuse me. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So he makes a point and he says there's a difference here. And one of the differences that he's noticing is this. The trespass, Adam's trespass, made all of us sinners. Now there's two ways to look at it, and it could be both ways. This is, you know, really smart people argue about this. So you can join in, I guess. One idea is that spiritually, we were all from Adam. We're descended from Adam, spiritually. That there's a kind of a spiritual attachment as being humans. And that's the idea of federal headship, that, that essentially God condemned every human being in Adam. And he did do that, and we'll get to that. The other idea is that seminally, or literally, physically, we were in Adam. That the entire human race had yet to be born through Adam having children, physical children. So there's more of a physical side of it. And so because Adam sinned and fell and caused a curse on the earth after him, 
seminally or physically, all he could do was produce sinners. And so Christ condemned the whole world in Adam. Whether you want to look at it spiritually or physically, that's up to you. The bottom line is it happened. And we could even maybe gripe about that, except for one thing. When Adam fell, his nature fell. Who he is intrinsically fell. So when Adam and Eve, intrinsic sinners, intrinsic just meaning inside of them, their core essence of who they are, when they got together and they created another human being, that human being also possessed the same uh, image and nature that they had. Okay, And so from there forward, sinners were created. So that's how the transgression worked, that through one transgression, the entire human race fell in Adam and now is under condemnation for sin. But remember, he also noted they didn't die necessarily because of that. They died because they sinned. We die because we sin. Then he says this. He says, but the, the, uh, the free gift, verse 16, is not like the result of that one man's sin. For judgment, uh, for the judgment following one trespass brought, brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So in the fact that one sin condemned all humanity, Christ's gift is different in that it covers all sins that humanity can, can achieve, <laughs> however you however you'd like to put it. All the sin that we can do, the free gift offering is enough for that. So where one trespass caused condemnation, there's enough grace for all trespasses. Does that make sense? He's going to expand on that even more. He says, therefore, oh, I'm sorry, verse 17. For, it be, uh, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now, this, is a, this little verse right here is how he is going to, it's kind of the beginning of how he establishes how our walk with God works. Because he makes the point that the one trespass brought in death. But he says, it brought in and death reigned. Literally, death became king. So it's something interesting. We were created, Ecclesiastes tells us, with eternity in our hearts. Have you ever wondered, like, from day one, you looked at the world, whether it was from poetry or music or a sunset or some sort of inherent beauty of the stars, and you thought to yourself, I know there's something more. And we went to biology class, and they said, no, you're from monkeys, and you're just a big accident, and you actually don't matter, so cheer up and just live life. And there was something inside of us that said, no, there's something more. And it was like you couldn't put your finger on it. You just wonder about it. But wherever you went, you're like, no. And there was like a gravity to life, and when you observe beauty, or you want to be part of it. It's like you long for something more. You experienced that? That's because you were created for eternity. Your soul was. And these bodies were never meant to die. Sin brought in the death, brought in death. So what happened was when sin came into the world through Adam, death became king. In other words, death reigned over us. Can any of us not die by sheer will? No. Right? We will all die because we all have sin and we are corrupted. We will all die. And it's a, it's a crazy idea. It's a, it's a wonderful idea. Since death reigned over humans through the free gift, something different, a different dynamic is at hand now. And who's it for? It's for all that want it, right? Anybody who wants it. He says, um, he says through one, sorry, uh, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace. In other words, anyone who wants and invites Christ's forgiveness into their life, they receive this abundance of grace. Notice how, like, the trespass, it's like, the trespass, the trespass, the trespass. Every time grace is mentioned, it's like, the free gift, the abundant gift, the abundant grace. This amazing, you get this feeling like it's, it's like watching, I don't know, like some sort of, like, Carl's Jr. commercial or something, where it's like, they, they show you, like, the giant cheeseburger and it's abundant it's all it's just amazing you know that's what you see here it's abundant grace it's not this little squeaking out grace like God's like cheap or something and and he's like a bad dad and you roll up and you're like hey you know can I get a pack of gum and you're like well that's like that's like five cents I'm sorry we're not gonna do you know no it's abundant it's all it's all that you need he has enough grace for every part of your life and every sin you've ever committed There's grace and there's kindness for it. And that grace and kindness, it actually leads to a different life. 
because it leads to a right, it's the free gift of righteousness, and it leads to the authority being restored to you in Christ. It says there, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So when we get saved, all of a sudden death loses its power. We will still die because we have, or we could perhaps be raptured, but we have corrupted, we have a fallen nature, and we have dying organic bodies. We die ultimately because of the radiation from the sun, and it breaks down our bodies. And as we age, we can no longer deal with the different gamma rays and whatnot from the sun, and it eventually kills us with things like cancer or old age or whatever it might be. So we will still die because these bodies are bodies that are meant for a temporal earth. We, our soul, will all will live on for eternity. But what happens is, spiritually speaking, and in a sense, physically speaking, because one day we will receive a new body, we no longer are dominated and, and, and have a king of death. We get to reign. Now, I'm not saying something weird like we dominate God or anything like that, but in Christ, we receive a power and a life that subverts and, 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 and ultimately renders inactive the power of death in our lives. Does that make sense? It's why we can choose, because we now have the, we reign in Christ, all right? No boasts here. It's not like we're super tough, great people. We're not. But we reign over our own nature because we now have the gift of grace, but at Calvary. All of a sudden, I don't have to do the things I don't want to do anymore. I am able to say no to that old nature. And that's what 6 and 7 and 8 are about. The, 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 the reality, the difficulty, and the victory. That's six, seven, and eight right there. But he's, anyway, we're still in five, so we're not going there yet, right? <laughs> so we'll move on. We now get to reign, and we now have the power and the authority through Christ and his Holy Spirit to say no to ourselves and to sin. Verse 18, therefore, so because of that true, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, the cross, leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Many is translated all in other places. It just means everyone. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be righteous. Who are the many that are righteous? Those who will receive. The people that receive it. See, the thing is, God loves people, right? And he loves relationship. He created you for that. That's why you have an eternal soul. That's why you were created to be able to appreciate music and poetry, botany, animals, whatever, you know, whatever your interests are, nature-wise. Because you were created to appreciate and to be able to dialogue about God's creation. So that is, it's funny because when, we, when you meet someone and you develop a relationship some, with someone, most of the time, typically, there's, you have something in common. Even if the thing that you have in common about is that you like to disagree about stuff, right? You still have that in common. And so you become, you dialogue with people and you grow in your relationship because that person is interesting to you, but you're talking about something. And so God creates this world, you know, for Adam and Eve in this garden and he sets them there and they're tending it and they're, you know, doing whatever, you know, bonsai they want to do. I don't, you know, I don't know what went on in the garden, but, but they're doing it. And then it says that he took walks with them in the cool of the day. In fact, that's how he kind of shows up on scene when they're hiding, trying to sew fig leaves together because they're naked. He showed up for their daily walk and some, however the eternal God narrows himself to be in a position to walk with human beings, he showed up to see them. Isn't that kind of wild? They didn't show up to see him. I mean, that may have happened. We don't read about it. But he showed up to see them. And he asked them, where are you? It's not because he was ignorant, like, oh, are you in here? Like, what's going on? You know, he's, he, it's an eternal call. It's a, it's, a, it's a kind of a hyperbolic statement, like, where are you, Adam? What's happened? Where's our fellowship? Where's our walk? Show me the trees you trimmed. What did you build? Do you have, like, Disney characters? What do you got going on today, Adam, right? God was interested in them. And it's them, it's us that hid from him because of sin. 
And that's what, that's what death is. Death isn't just you cessation of life. It's not that you stop breathing because of sin. That does happen, and it will happen. But it's literally a separation. That's the idea, that we get separated from him. And from the very beginning, sin always separates. But what he wants is relationship. And so when we're reading about what's happening, what's happening here, the trespass led to condemnation for all men, but the act of righteousness leads to justification and life. It's fellowship. Justification. You've been justified. You've gone before a judge, and they said, no, not only you're innocent, but you were right in what you did. It literally, that's what happened. It's, that's why we say things like the exchanged life, or maybe you've heard of like the exchanged church. It's a biblical word that, be, that basically means we exchanged our broken lives and Christ gave us his. We we're like, here's all our garbage. And he said, hey, great. Here's an amazing life. Here's eternal life. It's a quality of life that supersedes and is above our life. Right? That's the exchange that he made. So then he goes on and he says, for, all as, excuse me, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, verse 20, so he's changing gears again. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So now he's addressing something else. So why did the law come in? If we were all going to die anyway because of sin, if it was easy to show that sin is sin and it always destroys, why the law? What was the point of the law? And then he mentions this a few different times. In this case, he points out, he says, the law was there to make sin increase, which seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? The law was there to make the sin abound. So what the law came in to do when God sat down and he said, I'm going to write this out for you guys. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. Don't murder people, right? A few simple things, really. Don't make a bunch of pictures of other things and then begin to worship them. You know what's funny? Like, idolatry never changes. You ever notice that? Like, back in the day, and you can see all the, uh, you know, when they uh, exhume different uh, tombs and so forth, or when they, they do archaeological digs, and they always have, like, you're like, why is everybody, like, really chunky with super exaggerated features. I don't know why. But, you know, they always have these, these crazy-looking idols, right? And then, and then they'll, they'll find, like, different uh, uh, inscriptions and little tablets and things like that. Everybody worshipped these things, these false gods, for the same reasons. That's the crazy thing about idolatry. Prosperity. Moloch, right? Moloch. You know why you sacrifice your, your kid to Moloch? You know why you... You put the, they, they had a brazen altar and it was an open belly and they would fill it with fire. And as a new mom, you take your firstborn child and you sit your kid right on the burning arms of that thing and you watch it burn to death. That was Moloch. That was kind of a standard thing. You know why you did that? Prosperity. More crops and better fertility, right? Why do we slay our young today in America? I don't want, I don't want to interrupt. I don't, want to, I, don't, I don't want to interrupt my, my, uh, my life. I have my right. And my right says that I'm going to keep making money in the way I can make money before. I'm willing to slay my child so that I can keep making money. I mean, it never changes. You know, you, you can, you, we, you, they, they have the goddesses of sex and different things like that, fertility. Why do you give and give and give? We do this. You, ever, you, ever, you ever seen like a little kid? I, mean, I, remember, I remember as a boy, I... Uh, and maybe a lot of different kids have this, I don't know. But remember when you could buy like posters before phones? Do you guys remember posters? I don't know if they still have posters or not, but remember you would like go to a store? Remember that? Like you would get on a bus and then you would drive somewhere and then go to a store and there were other people at the store, right? And then and then you had to like look for what you wanted. Remember that? It was crazy. I mean it was a wild and crazy day back then. So you go to the store and you would see and they have these things rolled up. Remember it's paper? Remember paper? And it would be rolled up and in plastic. And there would be like this big thing you look through for what poster you want, right? And, and it would be like, I don't know, I don't know what, if, if women did that or not, but, but men did, or boys did. And you get like cars or G.I. Joe pictures or something like that, right? And then you take the poster and you put it up in your room. And it was like the goal in life. I will have this car. Someday I will have this car. I mean, I never was like, ah, oh, you know, but I paid homage to it. 
I'll get a job. I'll get this car. I love this car. You know, whatever it might be. Like, we never change. We pay homage to the things we love. Like, idolatry, they never, ever change. It's crazy how that works. Anyway, <laughs> I don't know how I got off on that. But <laughs> um, So the law increased. Oh, that's why, because the law. It, showed, it increased to show transgression. The law was given to God to mercifully say, here you go, guys. This is how jacked you really are. This is righteousness. It seems like it should go without saying, you should not covet someone else's wife. That, I feel like that should not have to be a thing to say, but it is. And our culture dictates that. You know, in the law, and again, I'm not trying to get crass here. In the law, Levitical law, it says don't have sex with animals. Do you know why? Because we do. Because we do. Does that seem like something that should have to be said? You would think not, right? But we become so depraved that we do that. How do we get there? You know what's interesting about pornography? Is that they estimate, there's a, there's a secular, I don't know why you would sit down and do this, but I guess I'm glad to have the research, I guess. There's secular research being done that they say about 70% of pornography has violence towards women in it. 70%. Whether it's verbal or physical abuse. And here's the interesting thing about, about sex and pornography. It generates a dopamine release, right? That's like all, all human beings at a base level, all we're looking for is dopamine. Honestly, that's all we're looking for. You know what methamphetamine does? It causes dopamine to get puked out of your brain. That's what it does. See, all these drugs that we, that we take, it's to get a dopamine release. Like when we say, like, I love exciting sports or people that do parachuting, you know what happens? Giant dopamine dump in their brain. Sex, giant dopamine you know, dump in your brain. Fun movie, small dopamine dump into your brain. It's all to get that. That's why we feel happy. It's why we feel those things we do, because it's a, it's a dopamine release. That's, that's what happens. And so we as human beings, we're on, on this constant desire and, and uh, I don't know, track to have that done, to, to, to feel that, uh, that, that gigantic high. And so the law comes in, and all of a sudden it shows us that the way that we're doing these things becomes so destructive. So with pornography and the dopamine, what happens is, especially in men, but it can be in women too. Right now, last I read, which was probably about six months ago, 37% of women admit to regularly looking at pornography, and 70% of those 37% say they've tried to stop and they can't, okay? The number for men is 67%, and 70% of them say they've tried to stop and they can't. But see, what happens when you watch pornography, if it involves violence, you actually train your brain. You develop neural pathways, and you mix dopamine dumps with violence. You literally train yourself to enjoy sexual violence against women, or women generally train themselves to enjoy violence against them during sex. It's just the truth. And so we have to be so careful, you know, how, how we do these things. The law comes in to show we're messed up. And it's mercy. It's mercy when a doctor comes to you and says, you have cancer. Now let's deal with it, Right? Hopefully you don't get angry when a doctor comes and says, you have this issue with your body, now we want to fix it. You don't go, I can't believe you're such a loser for telling me that. How could you tell me that? Forget you, I'm going to another doctor. None of us would say that's a healthy response to a doctor, right? We go, oh, okay, this sounds bad. How do I get that out of wherever it is? How do I get that out of my lungs? How do I get that out of my liver? How do I get that out? So the law comes in to say, you have spiritual destructive cancer. It's going to kill you because it's merciful so that we can say, how do I get that out? How do I not respond in that way? How do I not go down these roads? How can I do that? And so the, Paul says, look, the law comes in, and this is why it came in, is to cause sin to abound. But here's the promise that comes with that. Grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
So Paul comes in and he says, yeah, sin is abounding. And I think we can attest to that. We don't even have to look at other people. I think we can attest to that for our own hearts. My own heart. Sin abounds. But God's grace has much more abounded. It's not, it wasn't enough for the Holy Spirit to say his grace is abounding. No, it's much more abounding. It's not just abounding a little bit. It's a ton of abounding. It's abounding all over the place. It's abounded over sin. This, for me, is just evidence for me personally. More evidence. This is why I'm an eternal security guy. Because grace abounds. It abounds over sin. It abounds over sin. It abounds over unbelief. It abounds. There's forgiveness. There's grace for it. I'm not saying it's justified. I'm not saying you should do it. I'm saying it constantly abounds. And he says this, that it does it through righteousness leading to eternal life. So through what Christ did, it leads us to eternal life. Not just someday I'll live eternal life, but that I could actually live eternal life this day. That I, I could have the quality of this life, the quality of purity, the, the quality of dialogue with my Lord, the, 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 the quality of having the friend of sinners on my side. I can experience that all today. And so Paul, he says there in chapter 6, verse 1, he says, what shall we say then? So what, how do you deal with that? What do you say to that? And he, and he pronounces, or I should say he asks a, uh, an argument. He says, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So it says there's all this grace, and every time I sin, grace abounds on that sin because I believed in Jesus. Well, should I just continue to sin? And again, that's just a, that's a, it's a complete misunderstanding of what sin does and how destructive it is. But that still that argument comes up. and Oh, does it really matter? I mean, grace abounds. And he answers his own question. He says this, by no means. Some of your translations may say, God forbid, but by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now see, verse 2, how can we who died to sin still live in it? This is a rhetorical question. He's not saying, how could a believer actually sin? We are very familiar, and so is he, on how that could happen. In fact, he's going to write after chapter 6, he writes chapter 7, which honestly is one of the most comforting chapters in the Bible because you have Paul himself through the Holy Spirit speaking of his own Christian life saying, the, the good that I would do, I don't do that. But the evil that I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. That's Paul. That's like super Christian man. And the testimony of his life is, I struggle with my old nature and with sin. But he's giving us the tools to, to not let it have victory. So next week when we jump into it, that's what we'll cover. Chapter 6 is how you and I, through the knowledge of what God has done, can make choices and invitations to the Holy Spirit for us to be changed. Not just on the outside, like we clean up and we, you know, I don't know. I don't know what that would be like. Just stop being mean or something, but still feel it in our heart. But to actually be cleansed and to change on the inside. See, that's the miraculous message of Christianity. And it's, and it's, it's why, I mean, oh man, I want to be careful here. I think... In general, for a lot of years, some of us, myself including that number, have really failed on what the importance of the gospel is. Because the gospel is not to end bad habits. It's not just to stop, stop outward sin. That's why Jesus is so miraculous. Because the gospel actually changes you from the inside. It's not about just stopping whatever, I don't know, fill in some external sin. It's not about stopping being rude. It's about changing you so you don't want to be. Does that make sense? It's not about not becoming angry. It's about changing you so you're not angry. And so what we're going to learn about in 6, 7, and 8 is the tools that God has given us so that we can walk in the victory that he's given us. So we can appropriate the internal change by the power of his Holy Spirit. But it's, it's interesting because it's all him and it's all his power and it's all a gift, but it's all our decision. Does that make sense? We decide if we're going to be made holy or not. We decide if God's going to work our heart, in our hearts or not. We can absolutely tell him no. And he'll honor that. And we'll just get to go on in bitterness and anger and self-medication and all the different things that we do. Or, we're, or him with gracious arms wide open, we can allow him to work in our hearts. And that's what 6, 7, and 8 are about. So we'll cover that next week. Lastly, we have our, our communion here. I thought, wow, it would be a good time just to remember the Lord. Remember Jesus, he's sitting there. One of my favorite accounts there, well, the only account besides 1 Corinthians, in Luke is where he says, he tells the fellas, uh, well, it's just amazing. He says, it's with desire that I have desired to eat this with you, which sounds a little weird in the English, but you know, we might translate it, I really, really want to eat this with you. 
I really want to have this dinner with you. And when you think about who's at that table, you have Peter, who's about to stand in front of like a whole bunch of people and just be like, it says that he cursed and said, I don't know the man. I mean, could you imagine that? If you were like hanging out and you, you, you had this guy that you asked him to hang out with you and you were kind of like teaching him a trade. I mean, obviously that's a huge downgrade from what was happening, but you say, hey, I'll, I'll help you out. I'll teach you this trade. I'll, I'll, I'll show you how you can have this great position in heaven and do this, you know, or I don't know, maybe not position, but you know what I mean. And then you see that person across the room and be like, I've never even met that dude. I don't know anything to do with him. That's one of the guys that he says, I really wanted to have this dinner with you. Judas is there. You know, you know, you ever notice that when he passes the little bread that he dips to Judas, or he dips in wine and he passes it to Judas, and, and even when Judas is there at the garden, you ever notice what he said? Friend. Friend. That's not like poetic. Jesus didn't see Judas as an enemy. He's a, he's a friend. I want to be your friend. He was not against Judas, the one that would ultimately betray him. I mean, it's just incredible when you look at you have Thomas. Thomas, the same guy who a couple days from now is going to say, unless I take my finger and stick it in his open wound print. That's radical. Everything about that, like, you ever work that on your head, like, beep, boop, beep, boop. You know, it's like, that's pretty gnarly. Or he says, unless I take my hand and shove it into his side. I mean, just think about what a stark statement. What a proud statement. You know what, Jesus? Until this hand goes into your open wound, and it literally means to jam. Until I jam my hand into your open wound, he says, I will never believe you. And there he is at the dinner table, and Jesus says, oh, man, I've been so looking forward to having this dinner with you guys. I'm so excited about this. And then he goes on, he says, after this, he says, I will never partake of wine and bread again in the kingdom until you're there with me to have it. That's wild. He has this esteem, this love, this, this burden for you and for me. That he cares so much for you that that's how he looks at you. Like, he can't wait to be with you. He created you to be interesting to him, to be able to talk about his creation with him, to discuss music and poetry and science, geography, whatever you, interests you, cartography, how maps are, whatever it might be. And he's like, I can't wait to talk. I made this whole thing for you. And now we're going to dialogue about it for eternity. This one's getting kind of old, so I'm going to wrap it up in like this, chuck it in a fire. I'm going to make you a whole new one. It'll be brand spanking new with this new city that somehow comes out of some clouds and it's really cool. Because he loves you. And then he says this. He goes, here's, here's what I want you guys to do. Here's the plan. When you eat this bread, he goes, I want you to remember my body until I come, until I come back. I want you to remember my body. And he says, I just want you to remember that it was given for you. Not, not somber, like, you better feel guilty while you eat this matzah. You know, but no, the idea that I want you to remember that I loved you so much that I came to this earth and I gave my body for it. And I should say for you. And then he says, I want you to remember something else. When you drink this cup, I want you to remember the new covenant that's being established in my blood. Now for them, that might have meant a little bit more. It would be more uh, weighty because they knew the old covenant. They knew what it was to go to Yom, the Day of Atonement. They knew what it was to sleep in booths next to their house for a week. They knew what it was to, to, to bring a sacrifice, a sin offering. They, they knew physically what that was. So to hear those words that you never go to the temple again for sacrifice, that all the sacrifice have culminated in me, the new covenant is in my blood, that would have been, I mean, on a physical level, probably a huge relief and, and some serious understanding. But for us, it's the same idea, that the, the covenant that God has with you today is that he judged his son for your sin. And by simply inviting that and accepting that sacrifice, that's what salvation faith is. It's not doing everything right. It's not being a tryhard. It's acknowledging, I need that forgiveness. I need what you purchased me. And then he puts his spirit in you, and then you start a journey. But he says, I want you to remember that I am really, really like finishing off, culminating the new deal with human beings, the new covenant. And that's you find forgiveness in my blood. I'm the one that has always been promised, Jesus would say. And I want you to remember when you drink the juice, remember that you have nothing more to worry about with sin. This done, it's paid. 
And now we can have fellowship again. So I encourage you, Paul, in the end of that, he says, look, he says, let everyone examine themselves before they eat. And it's not somber, again, but it's realists. If we've been cursing God all week to say, you know what, Lord, I have to admit that I did that. And Lord, I thank you for your body that you gave for me and and for the, the reminder of your blood that you forgave that, how I treated you, just like you forgave Thomas or Peter or any of the other folks, right? And he says, and after you've considered, you know, evaluated yourself, in a sense, he says, then let him eat. Let him eat. So it's supposed to be a time of joy and of peace to remember the Lord Jesus until he comes. He's coming back. And it'll be a really joyful time for some, and it'll be a downer for others, but we rejoice in it because he's got great things for anybody who wants them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the bread and for the cup and what they remind us of. Lord, thank you for your word and the promises uh, that are in it. And Lord, we pray as we um, partake of these things, as we consider what you've done for us, that you would be elevated and exalted. Lord, you've been very good, and we appreciate it. We pray for the filling of your Holy Spirit this week and your guidance and leading our dilemmas. I pray we'd allow you to solve them for us, or at least wait for you. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts and guide us, everyone. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.